everybody evening yes it's june 21st that means it's the first day of summer and we have a nice show tonight for the solstice we're gonna be talking about occult themes and movies it's a it's a, a topic and a talk that we've had with our returning guest tonight, Jay Dyer, in the past. But it's always worthy of revisiting, especially since Jay is always reviewing new movies and there's always new things coming out and things we can talk about. And it all has to do with the world around us. Culture and politics and all that stuff. It's, uh, it, it's very, very, very interesting. And we have that. We have that tonight. And I also have some stuff to cover in the opening when it comes to a Supreme Court ruling today that's I think is pretty significant. Though there's some nuance that has to be put onto it, once again, because we have to really rein in everything that we know or had been led to know about the Supreme Court and just how supreme it is. So there's that. And I think we're going to have a great time because we're even ending. We have to end with a badass today. I can't wait to do the badass today. This one's going to take a little bit more time because he's so badass, so incredibly badass, that uh, we have to do that. So that's what we have on tonight. Jay Dyer, a whole bunch of uh, kooky talks about uh, messaging and multimedia and all that stuff, and then more. In fact, the badass even kind of sinks into what we're doing with that, with that aspect. Uh, there's a little bit of a cult in our badass tonight, so we'll we'll do that, and hopefully you're all still sticking with me, which I don't know why you wouldn't. It's going to be really, really good. I'll be taking your super chats. In fact, a lot of the conversation that we have with Jay, jaysanalysis.com, is all uh, based on the audience. I just threw it out there today across several platforms, and I asked, hey, what do you guys want to hear us talk about tonight? And there were some really good suggestions that that actually upgraded some original ideas that I already had. So we'll have that to look forward to, and we're right in the middle of it now. So thank you guys and gals, and make yourself at home, whether you're watching on Theta or on DLive or Foxhole, which is on QuiteFrankly.tv, Twitch, Rumble, YouTube, and, of course, Rockfin, which is... Jay's a pretty heavy hitter over there at Rockfin, so... This is, should be a, a great treat for those of you who spend most of your time perusing the media selections there on the Rockfin site. So get the word out, ladies and gents. Share it far and wide. And thank you to our sponsors tonight. That is BlueMonsterPrep.com. BlueMonsterPrep.com. I am not only proudly sponsored by them, I am a customer of theirs. 
I have taken a lot of strain off of my shoulders when it comes to what-if scenarios because they have a solution for almost everything, whether it comes to communication, uh, water, food, medical, all of it. They don't sell firearms or ammunition, nor do they sell gold and silver, but it's okay. That's all right. All of the most important things are there, and you got to go to BlueMonsterPrep.com. And if you don't know where to start, if you don't know how you're going to make your, the shoestring budget you have work for you, get in touch with Pat and Gina. They'll help you plan. They'll help you think practical so that this this whole idea of being being prepared for anything doesn't have to be so daunting. And then it's one less thing to worry about. There will still be plenty of things to, to worry about. Just a few less. So, BlueMonsterPrep.com. They are wonderful. So, as you all know, tomorrow night, Bill Altman, the founder of Minds.com, will be in studio. That'll be great. Jeff Harmon, the astrologer, on with us on Thursday. Susan Olson on Friday. Bill Barnes, Titanic Reincarnation Night. That's Saturday night at 10 p.m. And then next week is... A whole other thing. A lot of people are getting excited about my upcoming appearance on TimCast. And um, I am too. That's going to be one hell of a different day for me. Getting into a car and going, driving five hours in any direction for work. Doesn't happen that often. And I'm glad that it's only going to be a few night, a few, uh, a few hours. I don't have the stamina to get home on the same night, but thankfully I'll get home early the next morning because I'll leave at the ass crack of dawn. I just, um, if it was more than one day, then I would have had to found, found a way to, uh, to bring Lauren and Aurora with me. I just didn't want to bring them for one day and have them sit in, the, uh, in the, the hotel for, you know, a night and then that's it. To, you know, whatever. But I'm going to miss her. going to miss both of the hers, Lauren and Aurora. Um, let's get into some news now. There's a lot of it here. And the first one is, well, let's just have a little bit of a laugh first. This is Ben Stiller. Look at this doofus. Here's Ben Stiller showing up to meet, uh, President Zelensky in Ukraine. Hello, hello. He walks in with his, with his, uh, first of all, just remember that there are worse war zones in the United States right now. And this idiot is walking in with his hands clasped together as if he's meeting the Dalai Lama. And now he goes on to tell President Zelensky he's his hero. Uh, we know you, you very well. Um, it's yes. a great honor for me and nice to see you. Um, it's really wonderful. You're my hero. You're amazing. Oh, yes. What an awkward exchange. But then again, Ben Stiller has made millions of dollars off of awkward. That's really his forte when it comes to his character profile on screen and all that. It's just awkward, awkward stuff. And obviously, I don't know why. What organization, what NGO does he work with that they have to send him over there? What is the star power? I'm thinking of, you know, Tropic Thunder again. Is he over there to make sure that Zelensky has his TiVo? I, I just don't understand what this is all about. You know, Sean Penn has a history of being a, you know, a, a bloviating idiot. And he's getting, obviously, access from someone if he gets to sit down with El Chapo and all that stuff. But Ben Stiller? Why are you sending Ben Stiller to Ukraine? And who sent him? 
Is it really his own accord? Anyway, that's that was then. This is now. Here's a headline from the New York Post. I have a couple of the New York Post here. I was loveless before I married a rag doll, and now we have a baby. A woman in Brazil found a man who was made for her. Uh, Mariovone, Mario, Marivone Rocha Moraes. 37 years old. Yeah, she probably heard her clock ticking. Complained to her mother about being single and stressed about have not, not having a dance partner. So in an attempt to cheer her daughter up, the mother made her a rag doll named Marcelo, according to Jam Press. When my mom made Marcelo and first introduced me to him, I fell in love with him. It was love at first sight. I would... <laughs> He's got a mustache. <laughs> um, it was because I didn't have a foro dancer. I would go to these dances but wouldn't always have, find a partner. Then uh, he entered into my life and it all made sense. Moreas and Marcelo reportedly have been in a romantic relationship since the day they met. This is great. I'm very happy. Very happy for her. He is a man I always wanted in my life, she told Need to Know. After being together for several months, Moraes discovered that she was pregnant. It's true. Marcelo got me pregnant. He didn't take care of himself, and he didn't use a condom. He got me pregnant. I took the test. It was positive. I couldn't believe it. Not wanting to have a baby out of wedlock, wedlock, the couple decided to make things official and got married according to Jam Press. You see, you see, she's trying to cash in on some of the attention that the gay bodybuilder from Kazakhstan um, did with the sex dolls and the ashtray. You remember him? He had the um, he had the sex dolls that he was that he was marrying, but he kept breaking them because, of course, he was into, like, torture and stuff. So you can only imagine when he's playing with these sex dolls, he's punching them and breaking them over his knee and all that stuff. And, oh, she fell apart. Uh, and then in between sex dolls, because we've tracked his story, it's really a, a tremendous story. In between sex dolls, he fell in love with an ashtray. You remember that? That's the, the, the Kazakh uh, bodybuilder. That was his ashtray that he fell in love with on vacation. Ashtray trash receptacle. They had a a short but tumultuous relationship. Now, we we grew to respect the crazy bodybuilder because obviously he's trolling. He's trolling. And he knew that the press needed something. That's why he upgraded from... From he, he upgraded from sex doll to ashtray back to sex doll again. Then he went on last year to say, I'm ready to try humans, which of course uh, he would be very wary of because he's into breaking things over his knee and, and inflicting pain. So he, he def- there's definitely a psychotic aspect to him. But he, the troll game is, is top, it, it's top tier. Now this with the girl in Brazil, I don't know. It could be just a joke. She may be desperate. And it possibly is authentic. That would make it sad. But you know what? I hope that she and the rag doll are, are fine. I really just want everybody to be happy at this point. Life's too short. Speaking of life's too short, some Florida teens, this is another one from the New York Post, busted into an $8 million mansion to throw a wild party and host a boxing match. Said, what? 
Florida authorities are giving teens and young adults a chance to come clean after breaking into an $8 million home, throwing a wild house part. Hope, hope maybe it was uh, the Pelosi's. That, that I'd be totally fine with. After breaking into an $8 million home, throwing a wild house party and posting videos on social media showing the rowdy scene. Of course they would, because children are absolutely stupid. We did things back then that we shouldn't have not have done, and uh, a lot of times we didn't get away with it, because one way or another, you just, you can't think of everything. But, we didn't take pictures of ourselves at the crime scene and share them with as many people as possible. They're just so stupid. They're so fucking stupid. Take a look at this. Take a look at that scene right there. Now, the crazy thing is that usually, usually, I mean, I don't, uh, I, I, I lay commentary on this stuff too, but I have to say in modern terms, it's a very diverse party. There's lots of white kids, there's lots of black kids. Everybody's just having a good time. Of course, in a house that's not theirs and they're causing a lot of trouble, somebody, this other kid is, uh, well, took a picture of himself stealing rings took a picture of himself wearing somebody's rings and put it on the internet because he's a stupid ass stupid ass look laying all over the place taking pictures but the boxing match is incredible so they got this house and they got these black kids to box each other for fun it looks like a scene from Django Unchained they're all sitting around while they just beat each other silly so still Florida that's a story they'll be telling for years. Now, here is the big one. This is the one I wanted to talk about tonight. In the opening. Because this should give us some time. This should give us some time to lay down the groundwork for a bigger bigger conversation. And Jay Dyer will be on in a little bit. This was from Corey DeAngelis today. And he is on <clears throat> he is on Twitter. We follow each other. I spoke to him sometimes behind the scenes. I'd love to have him on the show one day. But he primarily follows <clears throat> school choice headlines and, and developments all around the country. This is why I know that even though it seems like a desperate situation, there are great battles being won all over the United States and local districts, people who have gotten school choice in place. We already know that there's a growing number of people interested and in actually taking advantage of homeschooling curriculum curricula I should say but Corey D'Angelo's put this out there today it's uh, it was breaking news at the time this morning from the US Supreme Court in DC US Supreme Court in DC and here is how it reads the US Supreme Court just ruled in a 6-3 decision that preventing school choice families from taking their children's taxpayer funded education dollars to religious private schools violated the free exercise clause of the First Amendment Chief Justice Roberts, this, is, this all has to do with the state of Maine, which I said there's nuance attached to this. Maine's non-sectarian requirement for its otherwise generally available tuition assistance payments violates the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Now, that is, that's huge. It's a really, really big headline. It's great news. I'm glad to see this. And I can already hear the teachers' unions squealing from here. I can hear them squealing and screeching. But I have to warn again, and put this out there, that this is, and I looked into it, a state program. Now, I don't know if I'm complete. If I'm wrong, then let me know, and I'll correct it tomorrow night. But from what I am reading, 
This is a state tuition program that is generated only by state funds, which means, can you guess? This case is not within the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. It's just not. If it violates the state of Maine's constitution, then it can only be adjudicated by the Maine Supreme Court. And if I'm wrong again, but in any, if any part of this program is funded by DC, then of course it changes completely, or at least in a significant way. With that being said, one way or another, it's a big win because it now, I, I would have to imagine, creates some kind of precedent that could be applied on a federal level. If you have a, uh, if you have a, an Article Three court that is living, uh, has this kind of opinion on the record now, this is this is pretty in, important. I mean, if we can't get rid of the Department of Education altogether, we might as well allow children a chance to escape the public school prisons. That would be absolutely fantastic. Now, of course, um, Sotomayor, Judge Sonia Sotomayor, this was from The Guardian. This is what they said. She was very upset. She's a very uh, upset woman. But listen to this. Sotomayor accuses Supreme Court conservatives of dismantling church and state separation, which has absolutely nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that whatsoever. If a private citizen takes their allotted school money to a Catholic school, to a Jewish school, to a Hindu school, etc., etc., how is that the state establishing an official relationship with any religion? How is that? How is it? If you're going to give children money, don't tell them how they have to spend it, especially since the money only comes from stealing it from their parents. Ridiculous. But she, she's nuts. She's already shown the entire world how, just how far her stupidity goes and her ignorance goes over the last year, especially when we heard it during that, that, whole, that whole COVID um, hearing. She already showed everybody just how stupid she is. But, um, but yeah, let's listen to this a little bit. The liberal justice Sonia Sotomayor uh, has warned that U.S. Supreme Court is dismantling the wall between church and state after the conservative majority ruled that the state of Maine cannot exclude religious schools from tuition program. In dissent to the ruling in Carlson v. Macon, released on Tuesday, Sotomayor wrote this court continues to dismantle the wall of separation between church and state that the framers fought to build. She doesn't know anything about the framers doesn't care to either she's just making things up as she goes along and she wears a black robe that's really what it comes down to she wears a black robe so she can just speak with authority on things and people will be impressed not me and hopefully not you in just a few years the court has upended constitutional doctrine shifting from a rule that permits states to decline to fund religious organizations to one you're not funding organizations you're funding children you're funding children. That's the whole point here. And you, you just got to face it. If you're shitty, it's going to get to the point now, if this becomes more and more widespread, you're just going to have to face that your shitty public school grift isn't going to float on its own anymore. It will need to produce repeatable, positive results, which it is not doing, the public school system. And it will have to be less of a safe haven for shitty teachers as well. That's just it fund religious institutions and organizations you're funding children so what if they don't want to go to your shitty public schools progressives fear 
Other rulings this month, among them a case to set a bring down Roe versus Wade. Hopefully it does. It's another thing that the Supreme Court had no jurisdiction on, uh, which established the right to abortion. There is no right to abortion. Supreme Court justices uh, often claims that not to rule according to political beliefs, but few serious observers have given those claims any credence. In Maine case, John Roberts, the chief justice, wrote for the conservative majority. In Roberts' view, the tuition program violated the free speech uh, exercise clause in the First Amendment. Roberts wrote, regardless of how the benefit and restriction are described, the program operates to identify and exclude otherwise eligible schools on the basis of the religious exercise. A conservative, yeah, that's that's funny. They have to they have to do that. Oh, there's some great bullshit in here. Look, there's some great bullshit in this <coughs> sentence. A conservative. Oh, a, a conservative. Roberts was appointed by George W. Bush. Since Republicans rammed three new justices on the court under Donald Trump. They got rammed in. I, I, I hope Danny Katz is listening to this. I want to talk about propaganda. Republicans rammed them in. Ramming the judges, Mitch. Where'd I leave off? Under Donald Trump, the Chief Justice has become, in some cases, a voice for moderation. Not this time. What horseshit. What horseshit. So, like I said, um, it's not really legitimate, but it's just the way things are right now, and it's an objectively positive thing that hopefully people will take as a go-out and fight the battles wherever the hell they are, especially if you want to have children who are being trapped in terrible public school systems to have a chance at something better, whether it is a Catholic school that has a good reputation, uh, any other school that has a good reputation that has that is run by a religious order of some type, it, it's up to you. At least you have a chance, all right? So once again, you have the godless left trying to hold Christians to, because it's only about Christianity, of course, that's the worst thing that can happen to the country is Christianity. Um, trying to hold Christians to some sort of a gotcha standard where they've been asking the question all day on on platforms like, like Twitter. They ask this rhetorical question, well, then I guess this means the Church of Satan can open up a school and they can receive funding too. Well, yes, you crazy fools. If there are children who have parents that are willing to send their children to a, the school of Satan, then that is where their money that is allotted to a family, to a child within the system, could go and bring their money to be spent. Why are you so afraid of consistency? I'm, I mean, I'm not a fan of Satan, or Satanism, I should say, because there's a difference between the two. I'm not a fan of Satanism, but why are you so afraid of consistency? You know? As I said before, uh, as uh, as uh, Frank Zell said before, it's not illegal to be a Satanist. But the thing is that they just like hiding their dogma inside of the public school system, and they don't actually want to have to put school of Satan on the front of their, uh, their, uh, their school marquees there. 
the guy we're bringing on tonight knows all about this too. I don't really, I mean, I can, if it comes up, I'm sure that he'll have plenty to say about it, Jay Dyer. But, you know, Satanism is not necessarily, think about this, it's not necessarily this direct worship of the demon. It's antichristic, absolutely, but it is the embodiment of the demon's rebellion, the rebellion against heaven, and the embracing of self-worship, it pretty much turns the seven deadly sins into seven virtues. It's humanism. Humanism, okay? The worship of self doesn't... That, that's, I mean... It, it doesn't require the worshiping of a deity. It's just humanism. Now, you're telling me that that is not the basis of public education today? As we conduct this broadcast in the middle of so-called Pride Month? It's an entire month that is dedicated to glorifying androgyny and kink and public schools all over the country and private schools too embrace it as well as everything else so i mean it's okay to say it public schools largely are the church of satan okay it's just that the lefties are afraid that people might choose another church they're not afraid of the this 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 church and state balance being disrupted there is no balance there's only one church they want everyone going to the same transgender clown college or else if they don't eventually there will be too many discerning americans out there who can see the clown college for what it is that's exactly what we're talking about here and that's why they get so ruffled when things like this happen so um and, and let's also be honest don't think that there isn't a large number of religious schools out there who would uh you know that, that wouldn't bend a knee to the social engineering and the globalist nonsense at this point because there is most of them are going to have lgbt after school clubs and all that stuff and you think that if you're going to get away from these crazy activist parents at the uh the pta meetings then you've got another thing coming but again at least you would have some choices and i hope the choice that most people pick is getting out altogether and starting to homeschool that's the the best thing and, and, and linking up with other parents who are homeschooling and getting their kids socialized in that way and just doing things on your own. Doing things on your own. Or we can just stop funding education altogether. But of course, obvious solutions aren't allowed in this country. Not allowed. So we will be right back with Jay Dyer as our guest. Don't go anywhere. David, David. I mean, I know you're a sophisticated guy. The world is a mess. The world is as angry as it gets. Well, you think this is going to cause a little more anger? The world is an angry place. stand up to us then they all might stand up those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one and if they ever figure that out there goes our way of life it's not about food it's about keeping those ants in line that's why we're going back does anybody else want to stay let's rock Yeah. 
It's summertime. <sighs> well, welcome. In the summertime when the weather is hot. Hasn't been very hot the last couple of days, but it will be. There's a heat wave somewhere, just not here. And I also want to make you make sure that you don't forget that Mungo Jerry's in the summertime is still the third best-selling single of all time. Of all time. Third best-selling single of all time. It's actually only about three million uh, uh, record sales short of being number two of all time. I believe it's 30 million that it has sold. 30 million copies of the single has sold. 33 million is um, Candle in the Wind, Elton John. And then, of course, you have Bing Crosby's, Bing Crosby's White Christmas, which sits at the top, and probably nobody will touch it ever again. But there you go. Just letting you know, Mungo Jerry, they have left their mark, and they're not going away. All right. So our guest tonight, Jay Dyer, should be joining us very shortly. And I have plenty I want to talk to him about. As I said before, much of it is generated from you, the audience. And we'll get around to that. Uh, In the second half, our guest is, I mean, our badass is is really just, just great. And there was one other thing that I wanted to do as well, but I'm afraid to, uh, I'm afraid to start it because I'm, you know, I, I know that Jay's going to be on any second. So I'm trying to think of what the hell I should do. I don't know that it's now, whatever. I'm just going to go to the, um, the headlines then. Because that was too big. You're probably asking, what, what, what the hell am I talking about? I'm just talking to myself. A little bit of a private private production meeting here. So we hear that these senators are striking some kind of a drug uh, drug deal. Uh, some kind of a, uh, a gun deal, which is actually... It would be actually better if we heard that they are striking a drug deal. A little bit more, little bit more their, their style. But I don't know what the hell is going to come of that. That's another thing that has, there is nothing, no authority whatsoever. But we live in a post-constitutional world. That's why it's good for us to have these conversations about the Supreme Court this, the Senate that, the House of Representatives this. It may not change anything. At least we just know the contrast between what should be and the terrible reality of what is. And then there's more. There's more. You have the um, the gas situation is going nuts still. They're calling it the perfect storm for airlines because they're facing a uh, high oil prices, and that the golden age of travel is over. That's been announced by Daily Mail. The golden age of travel is over. You'd think that um, that would start becoming evident when travel was so completely and. completely restricted and still is in many parts of the world right now all our lives we've taken it for granted but now the airport's in chaos a hundred pounds to fill up your car and trains on strike social historian Dominic Sandbrook says the future is bleak for getaway lovers well depends on where you want to get away and depends on how you know who, who controls the future 
who controls our future. Don't like thinking about stuff like that. Always wanted to, to get out and see the world. But you can find a way around the restrictions of gas and all that. It's, it's more so the central world government feel. It's more so the digital ID tracking feel that seems a little bit uh, unsavory. And then, of course, there is the feel of seeing what's going on in places like Italy. When you have 2,000 North African migrants that just, you know, pick a town and raid it. Things like that, atmospheres like that is uh, a lot harder to work through. A lot harder to work through. Didn't have to make those kinds of, of, uh, of estimations when you're thinking, where do you want to bring your family and, and what do you want to do yourself? Unreal. Here's a little bit more. Now, you want to talk about disclosures, and tonight we'll be talking a little bit about disclosures and secret, uh, secret military and, and uh, NGO activity that does a lot of engineering of society and militaries at large. This is from the Daily Star. should be pretty uh, funny for anybody to hear this now being said out loud. Elon Musk's SpaceX could start building military starships under new Pentagon plans. Everybody I know had already assumed that this kind of stuff was being done on the low, and probably was. A lot of the stuff we hear about coming out is usually just warming us up to being introduced to programs that have already been out for a while. It doesn't take $8 billion to start a space military wing called Space Force. $8 billion? No way. The Pentagon is looking at a possibility of SpaceX partnership, which would see Elon Musk's company launch starships into space to provide rapid military support anywhere on the planet. We could soon see militarized starships blasting off for orbit under ambitious new proposals by the U.S. Pentagon. The Pentagon was reported partnering with Elon Musk's SpaceX to look at the possibility of using the company's reusable rockets to send military supplies into orbit. Jason Burmis is going to have a, uh, a field day with this one. The idea is that it would be able to drop supplies anywhere in the world within 60 minutes without the need for a cargo plane, giving the U.S. military an incredible rapid response tool. What kind of supplies, though? Are you talking like food? The Transportation Command, U.S. Transportation Command, which is the part of the Pentagon, says it could quickly move critical logistics during time-sensitive contingencies and deliver humanitarian assistance. So that's what they're doing. A report identifies three potential uses for space transportation for the U.S. military, including alternative methods for logistical delivery in the event of conflict with China and the Pacific, Deployable air base shelters that could be dropped anywhere on the globe for the U.S. Air Force. Embassy support. Embassy support with SpaceX rockets. The other, the other thing about this here, too, that I've been tracking, and I, I was going to bring it up last week, but I didn't want to because I didn't want to tie it into my theory about what was going on with all those dead cattle. Um, the Manhattan, Kansas biolab that was pretty much the Plum Island facility that was relocated, the Plum Islands facility off the coast of Long Island where uh, they created Lyme disease. That was relocated to Kansas. I think it was just completed 
That was just completed. The construction was completed a couple of days ago, if not today or yesterday. And I went to go check whether or not that was already open when I wanted to see what was going on with those cattle. And um, I went to the the official government site about the new Kansas Biolab, and it said that it was 98% done. So I, I guess they found the last 2% in the last 48 hours. But enough of that. We've got a great guest that has just shown up knocking on the front door. Welcome back, Jay's analysis. Jay Dyer, how you doing, Jay? Doing great, Frank. Well, Thanks for having me back. Glad to be here. Oh, it, it, this is a, it's always an honor to have you back, man. We have a wonderful, wonderful time, I believe. And, uh, and there's so much more to talk about. You know, the world is going to hell, and that gives us a great open window to talk about hellish things and make it cozy sounding. Uh, you do that every night, don't you? Don't you do a nightly hellcast basically <laughs> pretty much <laughs> pretty much and i'm in new york so it, i've got the background and everything going on here it's very fiery the ninth uh, layer of hell there in new york <laughs> yes yes well anyway anyway it's uh it's it's great to have you back on and i i gotta ask you about your your uh your book and all that so before we get to your book what do you think about ben stiller's trip to ukraine do you think that he can finally bring an end to the war once and for all I just heard about that today, so I didn't know much about it, but uh, I guess it really is another element demonstrating the tie-ins between Hollywood and uh, geopolitics and perhaps intelligence. Uh, I mean, that they're all, that always seems to pop up, and, and yet it's still a, a connection that's really not well known. Speaking of that, do you remember, before we get on to something else, but I guess it's all kind of tied in. Do you remember around 2000, early, probably early 2017, it's when we were really getting fed the Russia stuff a lot. Uh, Moby, the, um, the DJ, Moby, went, was interviewed somewhere, I forget, and he said that he, had, he was told by people in the CIA that Russia was interfacing with and collaborating with Donald Trump, and he should help spread the message. That way it was so blatant and naked. It was, it's one of those odd things I'll always remember, Moby coming out and saying that. I do remember that. Um, I'm glad you you brought that up. That's a that's a forgotten uh, disinfo thing. Uh, I used to like Moby back in like ninth, tenth grade. I was a big Electronica fan, so uh, it makes me think of listening to all those old Moby CDs like uh, Move. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm not surprised. I think he, you know, he was early on a PETA, you know, quite a vegetarian, vegan sort of champion. And, uh, you know, the, all the animal rights stuff, he, he was one of the first people to really start dedicating his records to animal rights and pushing the, the vegan agenda. So Moby has really been kind of at the forefront, I think, of cultural engineering um, in the domain of electronica, which is another domain that a lot of people don't think about there being social engineering in. But um, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you follow electronica at all, uh, you know, over the years, the raves have sort of transformed into global trance global raves global festivals yeah and that was all with the intention um of promoting globalism in a very self-conscious way so the, the transformational festival think about burning man these kinds of things those are all designed by uh the elite to promote social engineering uh strategies well there's there's other things there too not not only the hypno the the hypnotic nature of the music itself i still love there are some edm um Groups and yeah, old, like yeah, old bangers that are really great, and there's still some some really great electronic artists out there today. But as far as the um, you, you brought up Burning Man, and even the, a little bit more of a recent 
recent situation that people have spent a lot of time analyzing was the Travis Scott concert. It's actually yes. Travis Scott concerts, period, because the first one that people caught their, uh, that it caught their attention was his um, debut concert in the metaverse, pretty much, mm-hmm. on uh, during, uh, what, what's it called, with the, um, what's the, what's the name of the game? My nephew plays it all the time. Fortnite. Yes, the Fortnite concert. That's yeah, what, I, that's, the, I saw the whole thing, uh, yeah. No, I mean, that's just it. I mean, it's not only just the, the hypnotic nature of the whole thing, but there is a drug culture that really enhances it all. And then uh, subliminally, who knows? You're dealing with uh, uh, other dimensions at that point. Yeah, the Travis Scott uh, Metaverse concert uh, had him sort of becoming a god figure. And then the, the he sort of blasted off into space and became this sort of transformed uh, space entity. So... Um, you know, it's just weird to see all the rappers kind of, uh, you know, hitch their wagon to the transhumanist thing. You, you wouldn't expect transhumanism and hip-hop culture to really go together, but but they really have uh, wedded to that because that's, you know, that's part of that Luciferian idea that we're going to evolve into being gods and the technology is, you know, the, the way that we'll do that. Um, lately, I've been actually researching, I'm going to do, do some podcasts on the connections between occultism and spies. And uh, at first I thought, well, there's not, it, there's not a whole lot on that. There's a little bit here and there of occult spies. But then the more I dug into it, the more I found that there's like actually a really, there's actually too much information on that. You could write a whole book on occult spies actually. But um, again, that plays into this because, you know, the occultism isn't just everywhere in Hollywood, the music industry. It's, it's also pretty profuse in the intelligence world. And a lot of cults, a lot of um, satanic cults have had direct, connections to intelligence work as well well that is one thing we spent a lot of time on this show uh really tracing all the work and the uh, the background of people like lieutenant colonel michael aquino and the temple of set and all that stuff so we know that that has that uh satanism the occult has uh, very very foundational roots in psychological operations and mind war afterwards after the the Vietnam War, so we know that that's at 100%, but you know, Jay, I got a couple of um, really great questions that were submitted by the audience, and one of them is kind of in this vein that I want to throw your way. It came from Jason, and he said, um, is there any evidence that the intellectuals who led the charge in creating the Marxist institutions like the Frankfurt School had ties to the occult? Even though they claimed a materialist worldview, their philosophy and social engineering tactics were clearly demonic. What do you say to that, Jay? Well, prior to the Frankfurt School, quite a few of the Bolshevists were actually into Satanism. So the so Bolshevik Soviet uh, hierarchy and structure had quite a few people who were straight up Satanists and spies, by the way. So there was a figure named Gleb Boki, who was a famous uh, Bolshevist who engaged in sort of eyes wide shut style parties. And uh, there was, of course, Madame Blavatsky, um, Annie Besant. They were actually pretty rabid in their socialism as well. Nicholas Rorick was a, uh, a sort of a Soviet asset who was also um, an occultist. And he's actually the one that got Henry Wallace to put the all-seeing eye on the dollar bill. And and he, he did that at the behest of, uh, you know, the, the conversations that they had with these, these so-called ascended masters. But it turns out, according to Dr. Richard Spence, who um, is a professor who writes on this from an academic perspective, I've done some interviews with him, he thinks that uh, Blavatsky's ascended masters were actually just uh, various spy handlers and and people who were kind of running networks of 
uh, revolutionary espionage. So uh, figures like Giuseppe Mazzini, um, who mm. a lot of people don't know this, but he actually had connections to organized crime and sort of the rise of the mafia. Garibaldi as well was uh, connected with that. The, the the rise of the Italian Sicilian mafia actually comes out of those uh, Masonic uh, revolutionary circles, and they have their own versions of occultism that everybody I think I knows about the omerta right the, the the ritual that a person does when they join the Sicilian mafia or whatever those are actually borrowed from um, occult rituals and the carbonari uh, that also tied to Blavatsky and many of them were socialists not everybody but many of them were socialists so so the early socialists had quite a few um, satanic occultic uh, uh, theosophical philosophical ideas and then um, and we, if we get to the, the people who were in the Frankfurt School, I think some of the Frankfurt School people probably had uh, dabblings. I don't know off the top of my head of any Frankfurt School people that were serious about Satanism. I mean, I, I know that, uh, who is it? I think Wilhelm Reich, one, one of those guys had uh, some loose association with Frankfurt School, and they may have had an occult interest, but I can't think of, well, Horkheimer and Adorno, uh, their book, Dialectic of Enlightenment, they're two of the most famous uh, Frankfurt School figures. Uh, magic and occult ideas occupy a pretty significant section of that book, but I don't, I, I don't think that they actually believe that. I think they're just kind of analyzing the way words are used to control society, and um, th they're looking at it from a sociological perspective. But again, anything's possible. Many of these figures could have actually been, you know, Satanists on the down low. There's there's evidence that Marx himself might have had uh, uh, affinities towards Satanism at a certain time in his youth. There's evidence that um, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, uh, dabbled in Satanism as well. So it's something that pops up a lot with Marxist socialists. Uh, I think George Bernard Shaw at times claimed to be a Satanist. So, but but as to how serious they were, it's hard to tell. But uh, that's all I can think of when it comes to the. Um, the um the rise of frankfurt school in terms of the occult. yeah i know and, and on that the frankfurt school uh, what we really the, the greatest if you want to call it a gift it gave the world was deconstructionism i mean what we're living through right now is really just we're at the bottom of that slippery slope that they push us off of um, the to be able to deconstruct deconstruct reality and be able to pull ourselves away from any kind of objective truth, that kind of an uh, of a worldview it it really softens the ground uh, for satanic, demonic, luciferian kind of um, you know under things to take root. It untethers people. It, it cuts their root from anything that could be solid and foundational, and um, and it, it allows any number of things to come in and swoop up aim, then aimless people into whatever cause they want. Our society right now is a perfect example of how you can galvanize millions of aimless people who have absolutely no education and have been uh, dissuaded from, uh, from reconnecting with anything traditional and solid. And I, I never understood or I never could really get a gauge on what the ratio is, and maybe you could. What do you believe the ratio is of people who are out there operating in the world to bring about globalist ends who are just really materialists and um, megalomaniacs they they just really love they just really love the, um, the 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 power tripping of it all and how many of those you think are actually trying to commune with uh, off-world entities you know how, how much of it is spiritual for them 
No, that's a great question because like going back to, for example, um, take a figure like Madame Blavatsky or um, there were similar, thing, similar things going on uh, between Tibet and the Tsar. For example, the Tsar back in the time of the early great game in the 1904-ish, he would send spies out and they would be kind of cloaked as Buddhist monks to, to do spy missions going to Tibet for, on the behalf of Tsarish uh, Russia. Likewise, Britain would spend, send spies to Tibet because that was kind of a key geographical region. And sometimes uh, you know, people speculate that Madame Blavatsky might have been doing some of these, quote, missions as actually espionage work. I think that's very plausible. Don't know that for sure, but um, the point there being is that it's hard to know in those situations. Like some of those people probably obviously weren't taking the uh, the mystical uh, Buddhist stuff very seriously or actually on any kind of journey. Um, some of the, uh, you know, British spies, for example, would, would become Muslims and they would become, uh, you know, immersed in Islamic culture to do British intelligence work. So uh, did they really believe it? I don't know. And it's just really hard to tell uh, at times if they were sincere converts or not. And that's why when we look at the elite in terms of their proclivities, it's really hard to tell. Plus, it a lot of times it just sort of comes out in rare instances or, or new information pops up. For example, Savile, um, I don't think most people knew, it was maybe a rumor, but you know, it wasn't until after all the Savile stuff that it that popped up that he kind of had these satanic interests and mm. occult interests. And you know, he's friends with other serial killers who happen to be witches, uh, who seem to, the, the Moors killers, who seem to take their Satanism and witchcraft kind of seriously. So that's what I'm saying is that it, it's just kind of hard to know when people are, uh, playing a role or when they're they're really um into this or or what they're up to but um again ultimately it doesn't really matter in the sense that in my view if you are serving evil like does it really matter if you're doing it will like self-consciously or you're just sort of a dupe right i mean right i mean i, I believe that there are uh, demonic entities so you know if a materialist atheist is serving that uh those agendas like it really doesn't matter in that in that perspective but um good question i mean i just don't know yeah in in, in, in that final point right there 100 percent, I, I agree with you i guess the only the only thing that i always wonder is um where where it, it becomes mutually exclusive again and i want to see how i actually want to get some insight on it is yeah, you you could be doing evil whether you know it or not, or you know if you if you were if you were rooked of having any kind of a moral code that would um, I don't I don't know I mean whatever your motivations are we do know that there are people I mean if we we just go back to United States uh, space programs rocket programs Jack Parsons we know that there are people out there who obviously want to make a buck they want to see the world under their uh, become you know under their control but then there are people who actually want to incarnate the moon child you know there are people <laughs> that they want to see things like that that kind of you know stranger thingsy kind of things yeah. montauk project things come to fruition that's uh i guess that's what always gets me wondering and who the hell knows speaking of yeah i mean even crowley like like sometimes crowley writes things like when you read this book you will see all the different uh kabbalistic correspondences on the tree of life the tree of knowledge and he's like as to whether any of this is real or works, uh, I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> I didn't know. even he at times would say, nah, you know, this may not really work. So 
you know, who knows? Who knows whether they maybe at times they believe it and other times they don't. Maybe they kind of, you know, go back and forth or um, but I know. But I mean, Crowley's another case of somebody who uh, it's hard to tell because he was doing spy work as well. Right. He was doing this work for British intelligence, working for MI5 and was involved as kind of an asset doing different uh, disinformation operations for them. So, you know, to what degree was he really out there trying to do magical works and to what degree was he sort of you know, playing this role for uh, British intelligence is hard to know. Hmm. Um, I had another quite a few more questions from the audience. I'll mix in here. Connor wanted to know uh, what book, what what book, or if you have a new n- number of ones that are off the top of your head, what book is most foundational in your understanding of New World Order and the agenda behind it? Is there anyone that po- that this sticks out? Well, in the Global Elite series, uh, we've done lectures through about 50 of them now. So I've lectured through at least 50, maybe more. And that includes white papers, too, not just books. But I think the most important book off the top of my head would be Tragedy and Hope. And that one's very, very important. Next up would be Anglo-American Establishment. Those two are key. Um, you know, you got your Bertrand Russells and your H.G. Wells and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the thing with the, the whole Global Elite stuff is that it ties into so many arenas. It's mm. sort of like... You know, when it comes to mind control programs, there's this book. When it comes to, you know, drug networks, which is a big part of how the global elite run the world, that's a whole other thing, right? Books like Dope Inc. or uh, Politics of Heroin, um, the Phoenix Program book for mind control, that kind of stuff. I mean, the Rockefeller's Authorized Biography by Collier and Horowitz. I mean, you got Soldiers of Reason by Alex Abeya. Uh, you know, I mean, it, uh, the way for it's not we don't talk about it as much anymore because for whatever reason thankfully the global elite have decided to not try to scare the crap out of everybody with uh islamic terror anymore but for a long time you know from the years from the 90s all the way up until the last few years we were supposed to be that was the thing we we're supposed to be afraid of and i mean um you know books like secret affairs or devil's game i mean those are you know mainline geopolitical books that basically just talk about how those networks were more or less cutouts for intelligence agencies and so they're they're, they're other versions of you know mind control um religious engineering to use radical religions for geopolitical purposes so i mean it just depends on like specifics of what area of the global structure we want to talk about but you know i mean books like uh, daniel eslin's book on tavistock is, is a classic i mean uh i think modern more recent books i think klaus's fourth industrial revolution book is probably the most important that i can think of oh man i that's just it's just incredible i mean it's it's pretty much a mea culpa that's supposed but not not necessarily it's really just one of those uh james comey types of books where you publish everything you did and all the reasons why so that people think oh well he's very forthright about it and obviously it must be a good thing but oh it's not a conspiracy why would he write a book about it yeah i mean why would you run from i mean listen h.h H. holmes one of the last things that h.h H. holmes did in in uh in jail before he was executed was write a book to try to appeal to the public uh, about one oh thing. i forgot about that yeah i watched uh, i'm glad you said that yeah it's just, because he's a serial killer. Oh yeah, and he's one of the old ones. And and uh, I've been doing a lot of research on serial killers lately, and I forgot about him. But yeah, you're right. He tried to write this book, like you know, trying to make himself look awesome. I forget exactly what all he was. He arguing that he didn't do it, or was he bragging about doing it? No, remember. that he didn't do it. 
that he okay. didn't do it, and and uh, and just just really wanted to because he's very charming guy according to everybody that kn knew him. But it was his last thing because I think he was all out of appeals and it looked like he yep. was That's whatever. Right. Um, but it's just a common <laughs> common thing. It, that's why anytime something big happens on a political level level here at home domestically, what happens? A anybody that was caught in in a really sticky situation either goes and joins MSNBC as a correspondent, or they write a book and they go on a book yeah. tour and they just stay public exactly. and they. Stay happy but that's what's going on that's just books there and I also I wanted to say um, you know I guess in that same vein the, the episode or the the very short video that you did on the discussion between Winston and O'Brien in 1984 uh, things like that is also very important on understanding how the world works and those who are trying to manipulate people through various methods of torture I mean we've been the, the last three years has been torture um, uh, it on a psychological level through restraint oh, yeah. through isolation it ha it was torture on a mass scale so it's important to understand even uh, that 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 fiction fiction carries a great weight in understanding the world around us absolutely yeah we, we've been delving into quite a bit of fiction lately uh, we've been looking at uh, Dostoevsky he's actually a really uh, talented criminal profiler a lot of people think of Dostoevsky as just you know a literary genius and that's that's true but uh, not only does he deal with really dense philosophical and theological topics throughout his works, he also really touches on um, criminal psychopathy and sociopathy. Uh, and another thing he did was kind of predicts, I mean, I know there, there were serial killers at all times, but the modern idea of uh, a serial killer as a literary figure, a villain, that's something that, that Dostoevsky did really well ahead of time, too. Um, and in the books that we covered in some of the recent podcasts, I mean, he... he he does that in, a, in an amazing way and he also touches on really sort of esoteric and demonic things at times and uh, he for example he, he predicted the the bolshevik revolution many years ahead of time and you know i think in the book it says 100 million skulls and it ended up being i think 60 million uh that died in russia after the the communist revolutions but again very prophetic and um when i was trying to think of the best chapter for uh, villains, you know, two two come to most people's minds. It was either going to be the the discussion between O'Brien and Winston on metaphysics that I chose, or the Grand Inquisitor chapter where uh, you have this discussion between Jesus and the Inquisitor and and Brothers Karamazov, and both characters are like you know just obviously the, the great villains. But I chose Orwell's because it's a little more more well known and people keep, people know about 1984, but. We don't typically think about the really deep philosophical conversation that happens between Winston O'Brien and, and it's the key takeaway from that is just that you know O'Brien is trying Winston's trying to figure out what O'Brien is up to and what the motivations are why are they doing this why does it is it because they're wanting to discover the truth and so Winston's questions keep assuming that O'Brien is wanting to know what's true and wanting to to get people to agree to, to what he thinks is true. And the, the whole point of the conversation is just that O'Brien is trying to convince Winston that he doesn't, he doesn't care anything about what's true. In fact, what's true has nothing to do with not, Big Brother at all. The only thing Big Brother cares about is perception management, is you believing what Big Brother wants. So it has nothing to do with what's true. It doesn't matter what's false or true. None of that. It's not, a, it's not questions of like, uh, what's the meaning of life and, and what's really going on in the universe and what's man's real place. And, and, you know, Brian keeps hammering home. He's just making this point that we're the priests of power. We don't care about 
any of that because all we care about is controlling what you think about those things. And we might change what that is tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. Tomorrow we might decide dinosaurs never existed and you'll believe that. Tomorrow we might decide a heliocentric universe or a geocentric universe and you'll believe that if we tell you that. And so that's the the point of the conversation is that he's like, Winston, I want you to believe what I want you to believe and I want you to really believe it, not just repeat back to me what you think I want you to say. Mm. Yeah, well, hey, we have that right now. You want to talk about two plus two equals five. Well, exactly. Common core. Com- I have never seen basic addition and subtraction. Uh, it, so it did really- you see the new, yeah, the news article today about the guy that couldn't give blood because he wouldn't answer the questionnaire about men it, having babies exactly he would he and, and we covered that last night 50 years this guy has been giving blood he, he estimated that he's given over like 250 liters over the last five decades and they refused him in a world where everybody's been talking about these these blood shortages all over the planet they refused him because he he uh, re, uh refused to answer whether or not he was pregnant and it's just like, I, I and it, something like that should not be based. That we should that, that should not is be based. Straight up Winston O'Brien conversation right there. Absolutely, I mean, that's, like, that's right out of that. That's crazy. Absolutely, be, they, you know O'Brien would beat this man to, nearly to death until he he'd say you know yes or no I'm not pregnant. Are you are are you not pregnant because why? Well, because I haven't I don't know I have not conceived a child in the last I I don't know because even to say no wouldn't be enough at some point. Because no, it, he would be like, I want you to truly believe that men can become pregnant. Right. And then O'Brien would be satisfied. <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, it, the O'Briens obviously are in control of the medical, uh, the medical uh, uh, industry right now, which is, which is pretty scary because that's in every state, whether it's red, blue, or purple. But um, now, m- books, obviously, very big, very big um, part of your analysis, and people just really gravitate toward that you that debates you're awesome at as we've talked about in the past but movies you and i if there's anything that we've talked about in the past it is movies and you do a lot of uh reviews um i know that you were talking a lot about stranger things lately uh somebody asked me earth grumpy asked me this he said i would love to hear you guys talk about a possible comeback of 80 styles movies Take the new Top Gun movie, for example. I think people are craving it. People are crying out for normalcy and nostalgia. I can't wait to watch Top Gun myself after hearing you, your take on it, Frank. And, uh, and we want to talk about that. So uh, 80s nostalgia coming back. Um, I know that there's a difference between, you know, there's nostalgia is good. You know, being trapped in golden age thinking is regressive in itself because you don't want to be trapped in a place that, that's gone. But a healthy dose of nostalgia to know why the past was better in some ways, it gets you into thinking that it was, uh, I, I think um, when we look at these, these latest creations, I think we get into this thinking that it was the fashion or the toys at the time, but it was really the cultural backdrop to everything that was better. And that's why all these throwback movements today and all of these movie reboots usually come off as so empty because yeah, you can recreate uh, the sounds of a generation, the the clothes of a generation, but if you don't have the mindset and the spirit, it's just de- it's devoid of soul. Um, what have you been What have you been seeing on eighty styles movies, seventy style, just throwback movies, and what they're trying to capture? I think it's just all. Uh, I mean, there there definitely could be a deeper esoteric significances to that. Um, I mean, I covered that in Stranger Things, the new season with uh, Clyde Lewis. We went pretty deep on that. And then on the fourth hour of Alex, I uh, went pretty deep on that. 
so that there there are some esoteric things that you could that you could tease out of that but i also think that it's just uh, laziness um they don't want to really i mean there's no incentive really to do creative things i mean it's just really totally about propaganda and uh profits so um i really think that they they feel like they can just package an entire movie on the basis of references to the other movies i mean if you watch the new jurassic park it was basically that it was like let's just create a whole movie that's basically read on sequences from the other movies and then throw in a few uh, uh, Jeff, 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 Jeff Goldblum doing his uh, the, 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 the thing there where he does his uh, thing, right? That over and over and over. <laughs> if you just, you just do the whole movie on the basis of redoing that. And it, I guess it made money. So I guess they figure like if it, if it makes the money, who cares, right? But um, yeah, so I don't know if you want to, that's my theory on that. But in terms of the more esoteric stuff, I feel like, uh, partly what was going on with Stranger Things was the preparations for the coming Russia conflict. So, you know, in Stranger Seasons, uh, Stranger Things Season 3, they really brought in that Russian element heavy with the mall and the underground base underneath the mall and the Soviets. And then Season 4, you've got Hop basically stuck in Russia and having to get out and try to leave the gulag and come back to, to the West. And... Um, I think that was partly yeah, anti-Russian propaganda going on. Um, and at the same time, they threw in this weird, like, it was also uh, hearkening back to 80s stuff, like the horror movies of the 80s. So it was hearkening back to, you have, basically have this villain that's a combination of Pinhead and, and Freddy, uh, you know, Jason, and, and all wrapped into one. But they had an, an occultic serial killer uh, element to it, which, which was odd. I didn't expect that. And that's odd, too, because... The setting is the satanic panic of the 80s, which in my view was partly true and also exaggerated to make it look dumb right. to cover it up. Right. I mean, that really was, that was part, a big part of it. So um, that's what is going on in Stranger Things is that you got one of these people from the Mind Control Institute that Eleven was at in season one. Instead of number 11, it's number one who's the serial killer who's basically sort of possessed by the... Uh, you know the, the Vecna, who's this lieutenant of the Mind Flayer or whatever, and uh, committing ritual murders, ritual crimes, uh, poking out the eyeballs. It's called the eyeball killer. So we're on the one hand, we're we're going through season four and we're focused on this uh, satanic ritual murder that a serial killer is doing. We're trying to figure out who it is, and it turns out it's this you know power that can possess this uh, um, mind control person from the institute and that reminded me of some other obscure tv shows that had the same theme of mind control operations producing serial killers right i mean if you saw the tv show millennium which was a spin-off of the x-files where you have this uh, sort of occult detective frank black um and the first season he's tracking these occult serial killers who seem to be possessed by some kind of spirit that the sort of working out the same ritual crimes uh, and then by the time we get to seasons two and three, spoiler alert, it's actually it turns out to be a government program, which was about taking gifted children and mind controlling them and, and doing different techniques upon them to see if they would uh, become super geniuses, basically. And the program failed in a lot of cases. And it turns out that's where the serial killers came from. They were rejects from these mind control programs and then they were kind of let loose. And then they go on to you know commit all these ritual crimes. Um, there's some truth in that because that's actually the, the Phoenix program that, that Douglas Valentine writes about. They were actually training people in Vietnam to become 
uh, cannibals. So that they were it was part of the Psy War in Vietnam was cannibalistic ritual murder, and this would freak out the local Viet Cong and the, the indigenous people because they had these sort of superstitious views about body parts, and if you know if you die without your liver or something, you can't go into Buddhist afterlife. I don't know. They had these weird views, but they were utilizing the ritual murder as part of Psy War. And so people like Dave McGowan, you know, they've, they've written books about how potentially some of the serial killers who were um, stationed in Vietnam might have been part of the, the Phoenix program. It's a theory. We don't know for sure. But it was just odd to see that pop up in Stranger Things Season 4 yeah. because, you know, they're basically having to go into the um, – other dimension to fight with demonic entities that in this case is uh, uh, possessing a serial killer. I, I McGowan, that would have been a wonderful guy to sit down with and have a conversation. I've seen a couple of his interviews, but he died recently, no? Yeah, he's was, the one that wrote uh, the Laurel Canyon, uh, right? Twenty fourteen or fifteen? Yeah, right. But his so his first book is Program to Kill, which was came out in two thousand three, and that book is about um, MK Ultra and serial killers. So he was way ahead on of the, of the curve on that on that thesis. But yeah, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon came out in about twenty fifteen or sixteen. You know, when it comes to uh, Stranger Things, I really have been enjoying season four so far. I, I notice all this stuff, and the, and uh, compared to everything else that's coming out these days, um, you know, they they make you put up with minimal bullshit compared to other shows. But there is this one super this 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 other supernatural theme that I keep I see popping up all over the place, and it's in Stranger Things here too. Um, if we're going by Hollywood's depiction of reality, there are two factors that are usually at play here. We either have, we have in one corner a supernatural evil, and then in the other corner, we have mortal beings, usually children, who need to formulate a crafty plan to defeat it. Now, in Stranger Things' case, they also have Eleven, who is a psychically gifted child there. But, you know, there's never an appeal to supernatural good or the acknowledgement of supernatural good at all. In fact, Jesus' name is only leaned on in, uh, in Stranger Things pretty heavily, in fact, uh, as a curse. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, point, it's yeah. JC this, JC that, you know, it's just like, it's an exclamation, but it's always, just about, and as you said before, they, they really harp on the, the satanic panic of the 1980s, which yeah. even I was saying, well, you know, it wasn't all false. Um, right. and, but you look at it and you say, well, the, some of the guys in, uh, okay, I don't know, I forgot who the, uh, the jock's name was. That was like, this guy is, is possessed by the devil. Now. Mm. Uh, in that respect, it makes it seem any kind of a character of, uh, of religious faith is kind of seemed to be a little bit like, you know, fragile and square and, you know, whatever. But it, I, it's a resounding theme. You get a supernatural evil that is well-defined and there's just no balance to it in the cosmos. It's just what, what can you cobble together in your playroom to defeat this thing? There is no other balancing force for good that levels it out. That's the only thing that I always uh, I, I always take note of. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. And, and Stranger Things, you also have a kind of a feminist message as well, because the villain in this new season is the the guy or the man, the young guy who's number one. Um, he's the psychopath, patriarchal type of figure that the young girl has to overthrow. I mean, season two was again very, very feminist in its in its narrative. So that that's also a kind of an element that's there in terms of shifting from the supernatural good being masculine and associated with the masculine and God the Father or whatever, and shifting it to 
oh, now it's girl time. You know what I'm saying? It's girl time now. It's time to step up to the plate, ladies. And, you know, we're going to be the, it's the goddess, right? And so I think Eleven is supposed to be that. She's supposed to be like the new aeon of, you know, feminine spirituality and the goddess and whatnot. And, um, yeah, that's that's pretty annoying. Um, the, the one thing I will say in positive about season four was that I didn't expect them to make the villain a um, a radical depopulation advocate. Yes, that, that that was that kind of surprised me because the the Vecna character is who possesses that uh, that number one guy is like you know I realized it was my desire to balance nature and get rid of most of the planet. And I was like wow, I mean that's and and that's odd because the, the, if you don't know the plot kind of in, involves the dialectic of the Cold War right in America versus the Soviets and both the Soviets and the Americans have these you know cern portals and they have these entities that have come through the portals and what's happening is that the the spiritual realm is the real evil that's what's really um behind this false dialectic between the east and the west manipulating the russians and the americans to you know to see each other as the, as the villains and then it turns out that it's actually a demonic thing that's manipulating both sides and i i kind of think that's really what's going on i mean you know, we're back right now in this new Cold War where it's supposed to be, you know, the good West and NATO versus the evil Russians. But in reality, it's like, you know, the, the real evil isn't some country over there. It's it's spiritual. Yes, indeed. And I, I think I think that the um, one of I forgot who noticed it and brought it to the brought it to the fore. It was a couple of years ago because it was after the, the, the first season came out. I think it launches the whole story starts around November 6th. 1983 or something like it that. It does. I just rewatched that. Yeah. Yeah. So 19 it's November 6, 1983. Now that has been uh, noted that it that was only maybe a day or two before um, real nuclear war nearly erupted over the uh, the Able Archer NATO war games. That was we were actually probably closer to nuclear war, if not. I don't know. I mean as close as the the cuban missile crisis and um you know that's probably the closest we were to armageddon and not very many people knew it the cuban missile crisis was was pretty well known but um i i don't know how much the duffer brothers really take into account there but it's it's interesting that you have all of these um clandestine government programs and agencies that are kind of doing secret war with each other. We know that there was a very competitive psychological um, uh, or I should say uh, psychic spying and, uh, and psychic espionage program. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a lot of competition between those two uh, states there, but um, it's, it, it's interesting to see how much has been taken into account as far as a timeline goes. Just just something there. There's a lot. And I watched Clyde Lewis is one of my favorites. I listen to Ground Zero all the time at night. So it was awesome to see you guys link up. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun having that chat with Clyde. Uh, he's always very insightful. Um, been on with Clyde probably five or six times over the years, going back a good ways back to even like 2014 or 15. But but yeah, I was I was glad he wanted to talk about Stranger Things, and uh, you know, it reminded me too. There's there's quite a few '80s movies that, and even up into more recent films like X Men First Class. If you remember, X Men First Class had a higher level group trying to manipulate um, uh, a war between. I think it was Magneto's, you know, circle that was trying to manipulate the Cold War to to, to basically be a nuclear confrontation that would wipe out the Russians and the U.S. 
And in war games, you had a similar, similar scenario where the AI was going to intentionally, you know, you know kick off uh, a nuclear exchange that would wipe out both Russia and the West, um, you know, with Ferris Bueller where he's hacking into the Pentagon or whatever, hacking into NORAD. Um, and th- there's other films that have this too, th- th- which is pretty curious. I've always wondered if there wasn't some kind of like higher message going on there, especially uh, 2010 is another one of these where you have this message that, oh, you know, East versus West is, is not the real conflict. And, but in 2010, it's more of a straight up Luciferian message. Cause it's like the message is that uh, East and West need to come together and produce a world government because there's no other way that we're going to, you know, evolve and uh, link up and yeah. download ourselves into the computer and whatnot. I mean, that's the whole point of 2010 is the transhumanist message, but um, have you ever, have you seen that? If you're not seen 2010, you got to watch. That. I, I I don't. I have to. I have to. Oh, it's I, I, really boring. I mean, it's like it's not. I mean, 2001. Oh, that sounds great then. Too. <laughs> but, I mean, 2001 is pretty boring too. But uh, a lot of people forget the sequel. But the sequel, which is also Arthur Clarke's story, is is like an it's like a explicitly Luciferian transhumanist message. Like the I mean the whole message. I'm not going to spoil it, but. It's about Bowman like being downloaded into when he goes through the Stargate, he ends up downloaded into the monolith, which is like a big basically a big floating server. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so he's like downloaded into it and he can like pop in out of existence as a ghost. I mean, it gets really wacky, but then it ends with humans through the monolith powers populating the galaxy and basically they become children of the light. I mean, it's, it's just wild. It's, it's wild. You got to watch it. That's 2010. I, I've seen 2001, um, and I actually saw Definitely it a little bit it. recently. But I, I sh- I'll, I'll watch it. I'll well, definitely. it's all set in the Cold War too. So there's like a joint, Roy Schneider and Helen Mirren. She plays the Russian. It's a joint U.S. Soviet space program, and the whole point of the movie is like propaganda that the West and the Soviets need to need to link up and create, you know, the world government or whatever. I got to check it. You know, I, at first I was saying, well, then, of course, when you got into the transhumanist thing, I was saying it almost sounds like those very uh, those very cliched the day the earth stood still kind of um, kind it's of like stories that. when Cla- like someone like like Klaatu will come down and say, if you don't stop polluting, this is all going to go like away. That. It is. It has that message that if you don't, yeah, you're going to nuke each other and destroy the world unless you create the world government right now. That's right. That's the message. Okay. Well, it's, it's the same thing over and over again. Talking about messaging right there, it's just, it's very, very uh, cyclical. I have a, um, I have a little bit more I want to ask you. I don't know how much time you have, but, uh, um, sure, but there's one more thing uh, on this. It was on Tavistock. I had, um, we talked about Tavistock a little bit, you and I. Um, I had a, a little bit of off topic from the movies here. I had a person named Steve, friend of the show. Steve says, Jay has talked about vegetarianism as a Tavistock project, though I could not find written verification. How does that play into the current food plant fires, transhumanism, and food in Plato's Republic? Right, so the written verification you're looking for is, first of all, it is mentioned in the Daniel Estelin book at, uh, under one of the Stanford Research white papers. I don't recall the top of my head which Stanford Research paper it is. Uh, Estelin mentions it in his Tavistock book, but to be really specific, it's mentioned by uh, one of the globalists, Alvin Toffler, in his book, um, I think it's in Future Shock. 
And in Future Shock, he says that one of the future trends that they'll kind of capitalize upon for the global, uh, for bringing in global government will be vegetarianism. And, and, and that's, you know, that's, this is pre-veganism, right? So veganism is, you could say, an offshoot of that. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, Plato is the first to really posit this idea uh, in a philosophical sense because he argues in the Republic that the the lower classes shouldn't be given meat because they'll be virile and they'll, they'll they'll be they'll be too strong. So basically, you just keep them kind of weak and docile with a bunch of vegetables. Uh, and um, I think a lot of elites have utilized that. I mean, you know, c- controlling the diets of the population is is I mean, it, not only is it part of social engineering and elite philosophy and, and governance. I mean, it's part of warfare. I mean controlling the, the food supplies logistics that is warfare it's part of siege um i think that we are kind of under siege you could say uh and so i wouldn't be surprised if they don't try to i mean we know the elites have been trying to um push the the beyond me agenda the insects big, yeah the you'll, you'll eat the bugs so they'll probably try to say that oh look how you know destructive meat is to the environment uh so you got to eat bugs and that's all there is and you know bill gates and his companies are going to come save you because uh you know they have all this farmland and all these gmo bugs you can eat and crops you can eat well you you had to have seen i don't know who the guy's name you had to have seen this it's one of the crazier clips that we we were uh, able to have the honor of seeing get circulated around the internet the last year it was this small little squirrely guy that has some kind of affiliation with either the world economic forum or whatever total globalist transhumanist type and he was talking about how they have the ability uh to to genetically re-engineer humanity genetically re-engineer humankind so that not only we would come out smaller in stature and oh, and, I remember that. and take yeah. up less energy but also that they can engineer a meat allergy yeah. into us it's so, like a chinese geneticist i remember right that, yeah. right talking about genetically engineering us to be allergic to meat so it would only be vegetarian vegan and bug based um it, it just it, all this stuff is going on in in broad daylight so yeah you, you know you should have on my buddy uh tristan tristan haggard who does primal edge health uh he, he'd be a good guy for you to chat because he hit me to a lot of this food engineering stuff like back in like 2017 like way ahead of a lot of people he's like look they're gonna be pushing this vegan stuff they're gonna be uh you know doing this and, and he's the one that really got me on like the carnivore diet and which you know helped me out quite a bit but uh yeah he's been kind of covering the the big food social engineering element all the way back to probably 2015 so he'd be a good guy to have on for that he's an expert on that but yeah his whole his whole uh you know channel is basically dedicated not just to food but at least largely to this whole this whole area of exposing the crazy vegans the vegan cults and how they're actually bought off and they're paid by the billionaires to promote all this stuff wow james cameron right i mean he put to what two years ago put out that huge vegan documentary i mean it's just it's ridiculous i would look like half the people in the documentary aren't even vegans anymore it's like they're like no this diet this diet sucks and it's like your body wastes away and you become basically a zombie on this diet so if you you feel like a wiffle ball just walking around yeah. it's, just, it's just nothing hey i, I mean uh, have you seen the videos of the people before and after veganism i it does there's something that look wastes away um it, yeah. it almost feels yeah, yeah. Like, they look they look like they're dying yeah and the in the skin skin all, all all looks like it's lost its elasticity it just starts sagging yeah. i don't know it's it's very odd maybe there's something there with the collagen just gone but i mean have you well that's that's another thing altogether 
I wanted to ask you, since this is very relevant, too, because you can't have a new world order without the death of privacy, death of nations in itself, the food we were just talking about, religious faith being destroyed through ecumenism. But uh, just as important as anything else is the economy, cash. They want to get rid of cash. And now we have this uh, this global you know, uh, economic downturn. It has taken cryptocurrency with it. I have, um, I have no faith in the future of anything that looks like the American dollar, but Bitcoin, anything like it, we're seeing these, these crazy ups and downs. What, what, do you think, what do you think about that as far as anybody who's trying to figure out anything that could be a stable alternative for the future? What do you say to the, the current market fluctuations? Yeah, I think gold and Bitcoin are the best possible options for stability and uh, uh, sound money. I mean, I, I think Bitcoin's even better than gold in the sense of utility and ease of, of use and whatnot. Um, I mean, the the wild fluctuations in price are due to the fact that it's still early. People haven't really lot. I mean, most people still don't really understand what it is. Um, how it works, it, it, why it's valuable, its utility and, and whatnot. So we're early on that. So, I mean, I, I've been interested in and in buying Bitcoin since about 2017. So I've seen about four or five crashes. So it, it doesn't really bother me just because I'm kind of used to it. I do remember the first time that it you know, went up to um, 19,000 in uh, 2017. And then a few months later in 2018, crashed down to three. That freaked everybody out. Freaked me out. That was my first big crash. So. I was. I remember being worried. I got diarrhea at the time because I had a, a bunch of money in Bitcoin at the time. <laughs> so, I mean, I understand if if this is like your first go round uh, and you're new to crypto. But you know, I've seen again about four or five crashes like this, up anywhere from um, 50, 60, 80 percent. And you know, we had the March COVID crash of 2020 when Bitcoin went all the way back down to I think four or five, um, and it had gotten significantly higher than 20, maybe up at even 30 ish. Um, so I'm not, I'm not too worried about it because, you know, you kind of see these crashes as it goes up, but if you zoom out, I mean, the graph is still, you know, like this. So I'm interested, you know, I, I think about it in more long term. I'm not like a constant day trader kind of person. I do a little bit of trading, but, um, mainly I just, I just am, am trying to invest and use that as a long-term savings account. So I'm thinking about where's Bitcoin going to be in five years, where's it going to be in seven years. And about every five or seven years, I mean, it basically does a, a 10 uh, or even a hundred X, depending on like which section of years you want to pick out. So, um, you know, what, seven years ago, Bitcoin was like, I don't know, $2,000 and now we're $20,000. So if you look at it in that time frame, um, or maybe it was even $200 seven years ago, I can't remember, but basically you, you see what I'm saying is yeah. that if you zoom out, then it's better than if you're trying to like, you know, follow the daily charts. And if you follow the daily charts, you're going to get wrecked. You're going to be upset. You're going to, you're going to make decisions on an emotional basis. And that's the worst thing for crypto and trading. So um, I try to just not worry too much about uh, the day to day or even the week to week, zoom out, look at the, the several years um, potentiality there. Uh, think about how, you know, Amazon, these different big companies, I mean, when they started out, they had multiple crashes. Uh, not everybody knew which of the dot-coms is going to make it out of the dot-com bubble back in the 90s and early 2000s. And so you had a few that, you know, that made it. And if you look at Amazon's chart, you know, you could make comparisons to Bitcoin as well. Mm. Not that I'm a fan of Amazon. I'm just saying comparison in terms of the, the 
chart data. Um, so, you know, where are we going to be in five years? Where are we going to be in 10 years? What's going to weather a lot of these storms? And if we if we look into the Ponzi schemes that caused the recent crypto crashes like the Terra Luna set up, I mean, that was clearly uh, kind of an engineered scam thing. Didn't really have anything to do with Bitcoin. Like, it was a totally different thing. It wasn't a problem with Bitcoin. But those big scams, when they get shaken out, you know, they're, they're part of the process. They have to happen before the asset matures, so to speak, to become something that people trust uh, in more, they, have, they have, more, have more reliance in. But I mean, when it comes to fiat money, I mean, I mean, they just printed, I mean, look at the inflation. I mean, it doesn't people stop. understood inflation and economics, they would understand that in the long term, like Bitcoin logically makes a lot more sense. I mean, it's not infallible. There's not a silver bullet. I mean, anything could happen. You know, we could have no power, you know, next year or something, who knows? But, um, you know, you have to just kind of make decisions on what's most likely, I guess. And it, how likely is it that there won't be an internet and there won't be power? Well, that's not very likely, right? right? So in that, in that scenario, what are you gonna do? Well, I mean, probably gold would work. I mean, you know, so I, I would say have both of those things if you can. It's too bad they can't combine the two, but then, it, you know, if Bitcoin could be backed by gold, but then again, that means that you'd have to have all the gold deposited in one place and controlled by a central authority again, and uh, they, then you're right back to uh, to where you were. You have to trust that being uh, held in in um, in responsible responsible hands for... Well, the, the we don't want it backed by something other than the network and the logic and the math behind the network because that's what gives it its value so if it's tied to something like gold i mean you can have you could have different types of valuable things i mean in other words i mean i you could view it like an asset gold's an asset houses land those are all assets so so all of those things are, are things that i i think it's good to have i mean i i think you should have land you should have property if you can um, you should have some gold and you should have some Bitcoin. That's my view. So to not put all your eggs in one basket, but I mean, the, the value, people always say, well, what's Bitcoin? I'm not talking about you, but people say, what, why is it uh, valuable? Is it, well, it's valuable because, I mean, think about something like um, streaming services. I mean, are they valuable? I mean, they're not backed by anything other than say the content, right? Well, the value of, of Bitcoin is its protocol and its network, all right? So it's a gigantic transaction network just like i'm not pro facebook but facebook has value in the sense that people value it because of it being a big network where they can exchange information and pictures and messages and you know songs or whatever so that's what gives it its value um and it's not something tangible right it's not a thing that i have to oh where's my you know here's my facebook no it's it's a it's a thing that exists in the ether so to speak and likewise a a, a unhackable secure decentralized network has tremendous value that's why bitcoin is twenty thousand dollars of bitcoin right now what i what um, i well, i think what would what would frighten me if i understood that well, i think what would frighten me the most is and i don't have any data to back this up but it just seems to me that most of what is going on in crypto markets are people that are just pretty much in this casino speculation mentality who see wild fluctuations in 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 price that could be used as a quick cash out and they don't actually understand or ever 
go as far as grasping what you just said right there as far as the utility goes. And if and if a marketplace is so inundated by that kind of casino mentality, that I, I feel like that, that can, I don't know, one day there's got to be a leveling effect. Obviously, there's the, we already have our, our Federal Reserve, uh, the Federal Reserve Chairman is talking about digital U.S. coin and all that stuff. So it's, uh, it's on the way, and I'm sure we're going to have different variations of this conversation as time comes on. I definitely don't, de- have not had the intestinal uh, fortitude, intestinal fortitude. I'd have diarrhea for the last seven years if this is what was going on. But like you said, if you just kind of... I guess if you just kind of... Become- well, that's why the safest route is like, I mean, the most safe thing in crypto is to just hodl Bitcoin, right? And quite a few people just do that, right? So if, if you had bought Bitcoin in 2017 and not traded and just hodled, I mean, you would be still be way up, right? Yeah. Like it was uh, when I first started buying Bitcoin, it was about 3,000. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not at a loss even when it crashes, right? If you, I mean, I'm not like super wealthy, but just as an investment i mean it, it's it would have to really be destroyed before i would ever lose but that's because i hodled for a long time and i didn't just um engage in the casino but you're right that uh yeah a lot of people do do that but that's part of the nature of that market is right. that in the market you're going to have people doing that it is just part of the process of, of something like that maturing but uh the same thing goes for the, for stocks too i mean people can get into stocks and 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 gamble but that doesn't mean that no stocks have value so likewise with crypto you know yeah you got people gambling and people doing that but that doesn't mean that it, it doesn't have value because there's kind of like all these different projects and all different kinds of things in crypto now so uh bitcoin is more it's not really like crypto in the in the sense of the other ones it's more of like a it's the hardest asset in terms of like a store of value and kind of like gold like mm. people have the reasons that people have gold is the reasons that people have Bitcoin. So, um, but other things like Ethereum, I mean, there's some similarities, but it does it does very different things. You know, that's NFTs, that's uh, DeFi, right? So there's, there's different things going on than what Bitcoin is. So that's why it's Bitcoin's kind of the safest route. Well, with that being said, let's talk tangible as we get off the air here now too. Talk about tangible asset that you can hold. You have a new book coming out. Let everybody know uh, uh, where, where to find it. I know it's on pre-sale right now, uh, what it's all about, and why they should get it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I, my publisher, uh, I didn't. I wasn't, like, trying to not use my publisher. People, why, how come you didn't use your publisher? Well, because they don't publish philosophy books, right? So I write about a bunch of different things, and th- these are about the 15 best essays that I could think of. From the old website, they kind of got uh, censored. Uh, WordPress censored me many years ago, back in 2018, and I kind of had to reconstruct the whole website from scratch, which damaged me, you know, you know pretty significantly back in 2018. But um, so a lot of the, I mean, I saved pretty much all the essays and whatnot because I'd written hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of essays back in my 20s and 30s, and so I didn't want to lose all that. And uh, so I got to thinking, well, you know, I should probably just put them into a book. And I thought, but how would I group it? Well. For the movie books, I just grouped all the movie analyses and essays that I wrote into, you know, movie books. And so uh, I thought, let's just take the 15 best philosophy essays. And when I say philosophy, that's kind of kind of all over the place. So, I mean, there's a there's an, uh, a chapter on Dostoevsky and Nietzsche. There's a chapter on um, esoteric alchemical stuff with Leibniz, uh, Enlightenment philosophers, um, the idea of the golem. Uh, there's a chapter on that. There's a chapter on cryptography, how that relates to 
um, the rise of computers and transhumanism. There's a chapter critiquing Darwinism, or two chapters critiquing Darwinism. Uh, there's a chapter on um, Machiavelli and statecraft in terms of geopolitics that I, that I thought was a decent essay. So it's just that it's 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 a, it's an it's a I call it a, an intelligent person's introduction to philosophy. So and it's called meta narratives, essays on yeah. philosophy and symbolism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and anyway, so yeah, you can get that on my website. Uh, just go to Jay's analysis, and there's a, there's a pre-order section there. Keep in mind, if you do pre-order it, it's a those are all signed copies on my website, but we're anywhere from one to three months out. So uh, I do have the first copy, like the PDF copy. So it, it's it is complete. It's not like a thing I haven't done yet. The book is complete. It just isn't printed yet. So. Right. Well, let's say it's great. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that people are still writing books. I know that you're always hard at work with stuff like this. Um, last, the, Actually, the first time you came on, we were talking about Esoteric Hollywood. So yeah. I'm glad that there's a new one in the feeder here. And uh, Jay Dyer, jaysanalysis.com. I had a couple more things to do, but it's 830. Maybe I'll save that for the next time. Some yeah, uh, some Mothers of Darkness questions and things like that <laughs> with movies. Awesome, yeah. I was just reading about that. That's funny you said that. Yeah, I know. It was about Harry Potter and movies, and I, I missed it in I jumped right over to the economic question. I should have kept that with the other oh, movie. That's okay. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, it's been great to have you on again, my friend. Uh, thank you for everything, and, and uh, all the best to you and the family. You too, Frank. Thanks. All right. Take care. Jay Bye. Dyer, ladies and gentlemen, jaysanalysis.com. We're going to be right back. Going to go on a quick break. When we come back, we have our badass. It's going to take a little bit of extra time, but I need some time before that to do all of your super chats and things. So... Send them on over, and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome to Intermission. We'll, we'll be right back. Yeah, Intermission. Quite frankly. 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 We all support quite frankly. Not quite. Let's go, Brandon. I agree. Yeah. Quite frankly, in Roma, Italia. Quite frankly, you're going on Frank's show tonight? I really like you. You're very smart. So everybody watch. Quite frankly. With Frank. Quite frankly. How dare you? 
Okay, let's get into some super chats here. Another great conversation. First one up. Let's go to quite frankly superchat.com. Trish. Very, very nice of Trish. Says great show tonight. Thank you, Trish. Thank you. Revolution. Two hours ago. Says, hey Frank, thank you so much for Friday's show. I heard 60 to 75% of it on Friday, but I heard you saying how good it was on Monday's show. I was like, I better go back and uh, and fill in. Had, uh, what did I say? Had a rough Monday and Tuesday. Just what I needed. Laugh to the point of tears. Thank you. I'm telling you, Friday's episode. The, the the second half was just nonstop. We just went through. I, I just went through some threads that were just hilarious. So if you haven't listened to it yet and you need a, a pick me up, it's very non political, and it just it just cuts right to the core of humanity. Uh, let's see, Gino. Three hours ago, remember everybody, you can leave a super chat to be read on air at any time, day or night by going to quitefranklysuperchat.com and I will see it the next day. Gino says, I'll have to watch later because my hockey game, but just wanted to say super excited to have you and Jay together again. My originals. You guys have taught my wife and Ma. Ma or me? On our long car rides more than anyone. Much love, Francis. Gino, thank you. All the best to the wife, and it's always great to have Jay Dyer on. I know it just, uh, I just need a couple of, couple of really interesting questions, and you just let him go, and he's just encyclopedic knowledge. It's great. It really is. Let's go to the Rockfin, which is, like I said, it's where Jay spends a lot of his time. He also has a nice presence on YouTube, but check him out on Rockfin. Todd Fife, thank you for the tip, my friend. And Tina Hagen sent me a tip as well. No message, but the blessing is well received. Spud Hill on on Rumble says, I really enjoyed that movie, Sandlot. You are the best, Frank. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Last night, the movies, were uh, back to back, I said the only cl- clue that we can give you was they're both from 1993. The Sandlot and Rookie of the Year. So, two nice summertime, old-school, fun baseball movies. If you have not shown your kids, children, if you've not shown your children Sandlot or Rookie of the Year, then what are you waiting for? Chet Stedman? I am so sick of hearing about Chet Stedman. And, uh, Anil... An elixir. An elixir. Says, I think I love you. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I Well, I'm, it's good to be loved. And I hope that you continue to enjoy yourself. I can't make any promises. Uh, outside of, I'll just keep working on the show very well. As much as I can. Fred Awakening says, spinning wheel of death on Foxhole, Frank. I wonder what's happening. Wonder what's happening. Uh, Selling the farm says, let's rumble in the jungle. It's the first day of summer. It's right by me. Love you, Frank. Thank you. Lots of love out there. 
from Analixer. I got some love from Selling the Farm. Kicked it all off with some love. Thank you, guys. Over on the foxhole now. Plenty of activity there, so hopefully I think the stream is shored up. But we have we have Tuesday night programming that's going live in 20 minutes. So get on to quitefrankly.tv, and you can watch the rest of this program and then chill out as we take you into a nice, comfy direction for the rest of the night. Uh, we're going to be able to fill in Tuesdays and Thursday nights after the show. A lot easier now that Monday and Wednesday have set themes. We've got Mystery Movie Monday. We've got Rabbit Hole Wednesdays. So that means that we can put a lot more of the compilation type stuff until we figure out themes for Tuesday and Thursday in there. So we are very close to Monday through Friday, filled with wonderful um, after-hours programming. And then uh, uh, Lauren just texted me and said, um, listen, girl. <laughs> Don't worry, Lauren. You're the only one for me. Um, uh, whatchamacallit? Uh, what the hell is he saying? Oh, and then, of course, I, I curate the, the Sunday nights. So it really is just Saturday. I have to figure out a way to get a little bit more consistent with Saturday nights. Saturday night programming. Then we're at, then we're at seven days a week. And then we got to get to 24-7. You see, we have a lot of things to do. We'll figure it out, though. Thank you for supporting us. WitchyPoo22 received the book today. Thank you for that. And a little extra special drawing from Aurora. See, I'm glad you liked it, WitchyPoo. WitchyPoo won the raffle, uh, the David McCullough 1776 book that we gave, a, uh, gave away last week. Sent it off to her, and she said, can, when you inscribe it, can you have Aurora write a little something? Said, I'll do you one better. Made Aurora do a little... Uh, little um, like a watercolor thing for her. So, I'm going to do more raffles. People really enjoy that. Frank Staint says, love that shirt. Thank you. It's a lot more brilliant here in, um, in the studio. This is a fluorescent green shirt. So, if I'm ever lost in a crowd, you'll find me easily. You can probably light a cigarette on me right now. But it's a Savannah Bananas shirt. I've been a big fan of the Savannah Bananas for a long time. I've known about them. I've never seen them, obviously. They're in Georgia. But I said, you know what? I want to get one of their, their pieces of merch. It's a really... If I was anywhere in the Georgia area, and I know we have people from Georgia watching this, if you have never gone to see a game, a Savannah Bananas baseball game, what the hell are you doing? Even if you don't like baseball, go out there. They seem like the, the most fun group of guys it seems like they do such great things for fan service and everything else. But Lauren went and checked out all of their uh, their tickets. Apparently, they're like sold out for the rest of the season. I can understand why. I'll do a little something on the Savannah Bananas on this show one night to show you. Um, Witchy Poo, again, thank you. Tom Ford says, let's get the party started, guys. Come on. Cookie fight started now. Witchy Poo and Two in the Pink. Two in the Pink says, long time, bro. Been busy dealing with personal shit. I'm on the late night a lot. You don't have to tell me about personal shit. I understand. Good to have you out there, Two in the Pink. Sean Joe, River Pike, Zeta Anon says, 7% service to other, 4% service to self. The rest undecided. To, uh, to a lowrider. 2A Lowrider says, who is that under the red jester gear, headgear on your set? Oh, that? That's a, that's, that's a bust of JFK. 
Sean Joe. River Pike says, bless you, Frank, bless you. River Pike again, just a sinner. Just a sinner that believes in Christ. Sinners we are. Oh, but you left out a second N. Sinner has two two ends. That's signer that you just sent me. Um, but you can be a signer that loves Christ as well. Just <laughs> Jay Brewskies, Mazington, River Pike, do you like to fish? Just asking. I would love to fish. I've only done it a couple of times, and I've never caught anything. So I would love a complete fishing experience one day. Sean Joe, Witchy Poo 22, River Pike again, trust in the Lord, I trust in my Lord Jesus, says River Pike. And now we're getting big time cookie fights and all that. Great show, thank you, says Jay Jewel. Time to rock and water the garden, God bless you and your friend, love you all, says River Pike. Tom Ford says, yeah, that first comment was really early on. That's that. All right, ladies and gents, we're good over there. Now I have to say, before we get into our badass, I have a birthday over here that I forgot to do yesterday. That's my fault. Completely my fault. Where is it? Here we go. This is from Josh. Josh is a sponsor of the show. Josh's brother, Frank, could you please give a happy birthday shout out to the wonderful Penny Cricket? On Monday, that's yesterday, June 20th, she's turning 10. She's wonderfully sweet and respectful little girl. She actually asked me to ask you back in January. Thanks for the great shows. Penny Cricket. I'll tell you a little something, Penny Cricket. First of all, I love the name Penny. And Cricket was the nickname that my Little League coach, Coach Mike, gave me when I was in fifth or sixth grade. Because when I played first base, I would do all this acrobatic jumping around, stretching nonsense. And he said I'd jump around like a cricket. And sometimes he would sing uh, Jiminy Cricket's uh, When You Wish Upon a Star from the dugout while I was, you know, out there getting myself settled in at the first base position. When you wish upon a star. And he would do that. He'd call me Cricket. That's the one and only time I ever had a nickname. I've been called many things since then, but not consistently and not with love. So, Penny Cricket, thank you for hanging out with me whenever your parents allow you to, because I know sometimes Uncle Frank can say things that no one should ever hear, that should never be whispered in the dark. But that's just Uncle Frank. You have to just forgive him from time to time. And uh, I remember turning 10. I, I remember having a little bit of an existential crisis when I was 10 years old. This is 1995 we're talking. And I remember being a little bit sad because I would never be single digits again. My age would never be single digits again. I realized the big, the big leap I was taking into double digit age. And most people don't get out of double digit age. So um, the next time I'll feel that is when I'm 99. And I just don't know if I have the strength for that. <laughs> so you just... Enjoy 10 and have a wonderful night. Penny Cricket. All right. Trevor Phillips says, hey, Frank, uh, when are you going to be a guest spot? Uh, when are you going to get a guest spot on InfoWars? They stole your intermission. I'm not. I'm Listen, I, I'm, let me just say first, I'm doing already enough broadcasting. It, uh, I, would, I would field offers for syndicating my show. Especially if you own a radio station out there somewhere in America. If you own a little radio station 
and you want to try to slip me in on on late nights then you know get in touch with me but other than that um i'm i'm not doing you know jay dyer does some of alex jones's fourth uh hour he does a wonderful job but as far as they stole my inter they're they're doing the intermission from the offspring i've been using that intermission since the beginning but i guess they have a bigger footprint than we do so not to say that they stole it but maybe they did just never know here's from tom frank i don't watch tim pool but i'll watch for you well let me just say ladies and gentlemen regardless of what your feelings are of one person or another just consider me an ambassador for our little corner of the internet wherever i go and just remember it is my job to grow this audience and uh, i'm very appreciative that um no matter how many years later i was uh, offered an invite to go hang out and i'm going to try to make the best of it i i promise you that so thank you guys and gals so much for your support on that respect so let's go and let's jump into our we might go past nine o'clock now our badass of the night who the hell who is it who is it because it's going to take a little bit longer we're going to do this in a little bit more of a uh, it's going to be a very very fun way i i, I tried to get a, an adequate one pager bio done for him but it seemed to be an impossible task so we dug up a great article from 2015 that provides us with 22 incredible facts about tonight's badass who is it you ask some badass shit. Well, badass. you know what I have to tell you. It's Christopher Lee. Sir Christopher Lee. Incredible life. We've talked about him before on this show. But now that we have Badass Month in June, this is something that needs to be done. So let's do it. 22 incredible facts about the life and career of Sir Christopher Lee. Number one. He was entered into the Guinness Book of World Records in 2007 for most screen credits, having appeared in 254 film and television movies by that point in his career, and then made 14 more movies with a 15th due later on this year, that was in 2015 before he died. Titled Angels in Notting Hill, he also holds the record for the tallest leading actor. He stood at six foot five but also for starring in the most films with a sword fight with 17 is a very accomplished duelist which is why he played a uh, an incredible count dooku in star wars his mother was an italian contessa and through her lee descended from emperor charlemagne of the holy roman empire and was related, related to robert e lee the confederate general that is some good stock right there he met, this number three, he met Prince uh, Yusupov and Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, the assassins of the Russian monk Rasputin. He didn't do this as a research for his later film, uh, a role as Rasputin in 1966, Hammerfield Rasputin the Mad Monk, but as a child in the 1920s, he met them. They were fresh off of their murder. At age 17, he saw the death of the murderer, Eugene Weidman, in Paris, the last person in France to be publicly executed by guillotine. In fact, I believe that that is on tape. I think you can watch that. 
During World War II, Lee joined the Royal Air Force but wasn't allowed to fly because of a problem with his optic nerve. So he became an intelligence officer for the Long Range Desert Patrol, a forerunner of the SAS, Britain's, Britain's Special Forces. He fought the Nazis in North Africa, having up to five missions a day. During his time, he helped retake Sicily, prevented a mutiny among his troops, contracted malaria six times in a single year, and climbed Mount Vesuvius three days before it erupted. Wow. Now, I have something else I want to show you there. Yes, he spent a lot of time in the, uh, the Special Forces. Uh, but I'll, I guess I'll, I'll wait until we'll do this a little bit more. I'll do a little more. Number six, at some point during the war, he moved from LRDP to Winston Churchill's even more elite Special Operations Executive, whose missions are literally still classified, but involved conducting espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance in occupied Europe against the Axis powers. The SOE was formally infor- was informally called, and I can't believe this somehow hasn't been made into a movie yet, the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Now, I'm going to show you a little something that I went and I grabbed two clips. Here's one of them. Two clips that I think goes very well with this fact about Christopher Lee. When he played Sauron in uh, Peter Jackson's adaptation of Lord of the Rings... Peter Jackson went to tell him when he's about to get, I, he, I think he gets stabbed in the back by Wormtongue. And he goes and uh, tries to tell Christopher Lee how he wants to uh, react, how he wants Christopher Lee to react when he gets stabbed in the back. To which Christopher Lee, of course, BDFOs Peter Jackson. Listen to this. You ought to see me with the 357 Magnum. I'm awesome. When Wormtongue rises up and comes up behind Saruman to stab him, um, of course it was my job as director to talk to Christopher Lee and to explain to him what I, what I wanted. So I started to go into this long explanation about what sort of sound he should make when he got stabbed. I seem to recall that I did say to Peter, have you any idea of what kind of noise happens when somebody is stabbed in the back? And I said, well, because I do. It's not, ah, I like that. It's because the breath's driven out of your body. He proceeded to sort of talk about some very clandestine part of World War II. He used to be in the, the British Secret Service, whatever they were called, the OSS. He seemed to have expert knowledge of exactly the sort of noise that they make, and so I just sort of didn't push the subject any further. I just said, well, you obviously know what to do, Christopher, so I'm sure you'll do it great. And he did. So just imagine that being Peter Jackson, like, all right, all right, uh, Mr. Lee, here's what I want you to do. Have you ever killed a man, Peter? <laughs> so, uh, yes, he's definitely uh, been on some assassin missions. What else do we have? There's a little bit more. There's a lot more. Speaking both, fr- let's see here. He never said anything specific about his time in the Special Forces, but he did say, I have seen many men die right in front of me. So many, in fact, that I've become almost hardened to it, having seen the worst that human beings can do to each other, the results of torture, mutilation, seeing someone blown to pieces by a bomb. You develop a kind of shell, uh, but you had to. You had to, otherwise we would never have won. Number eight, 
Speaking both French and Italian, Lee spent his time after World War II hunting Nazis with the Central Registry of War Criminals and uh, security suspects until he decided to give acting a try at age 25. Yes, all that happened before Lee was 25 years old. Now, afterwards, while filming a sword fight with a drunken Errol Flynn, during the filming of The Dark Avengers in 1955, Flynn accidentally cut Lee's hand so badly, his finger nearly came off and is permanently injured. Number 10. While best known for his portrayal of Dracula in countless films, he also starred as The Mummy and Frankenstein's Monster. Of course, he's known for as Saruman in Lord of the Rings and Count Dooku in Star Wars prequels, but his other villainous roles included Fu Manchu, Rasputin, Rochefort of the Three Musketeers, and more. More. Uh, Lee was not only related to James Bond creator and author Ian Fleming, but they were step-cousins. Did you know that? And also, Lee was actually one of Fleming's first choices for the role of Bond, not least because of Lee's World War II and SOC experiences. We could have talked to Jay Dyer about Ian Fleming for, for hours. He, and I finally saw um, No Time to Die, so I could have, you know, yucked it up about that too. Number 12, he played Sherlock Holmes, his brother Mycroft Holmes, and also Sir Henry Bakersville of the Hound of Bakersville. The, uh, and then number 13, tired of playing Dracula and feeling that the movies had gotten subpar, Lee tried to quit Hammer Films, but the studio executives guilted him into returning by stressing how many people would be out of work if Lee stopped churning out hits. Lee agreed to star in 1966 Dracula, Prince of Darkness. He felt the script was so awful he adamantly refused to say any of the dialogue. Hammer decided that it was far more important to have Mute Lee as a star as opposed to anyone else and thus had Dracula hiss and yell through the film. Oh, man, I may have to watch that now knowing that he hated the script. Number 14, in the 50s, Lee was engaged to Henriette von Rosen, daughter of Count, of Count Fritz von Rosen. Count, the Count apparently didn't like Lee because after hiring private detectives to investigate the actor and demanding references, he also refused to allow his daughter to marry him unless Lee got the blessing of the King of Sweden. And Lee got it. Damn. Just did his thing. He was a major Tolkien fan. Of course, he became Saruman. Got that. Fanboyed out. He actually uh, knew Tolkien. He actually was able to meet Tolkien personally. Apparently, he ran into him randomly in a pub and fanboyed on him. Can you imagine getting fanboyed on by Christopher Lee? Then when Lee, this is number 16, heard that Hollywood was going to finally make the Lord of the Rings trilogy, he took the role in... Uh, he took a role in the terrible 1997 series, The New Adventures of Robin Hood, as a wizard, specifically so he'd have clear evidence of his ability to be a wizard. Then when he heard Peter Jackson would direct the films, he sent Jackson a personal letter asking to be in the movies along with a picture of him dressed up as a wizard. Unfortunately, Lee's advanced age and his natural ability to play villains made him even better choice for Saruman. Unfortunately. Why is that unfortunate? Oh, did, did he want... I don't know. I don't know why that was unfortunate. Anyway, number 17, we're almost done. The story has gone around a lot, but it bears repeating because of its incredible during his death scene of return... Oh, there we go. He knows exactly. It's the stabbing sound. I didn't know it was number 17. I would have waited for that. Number 18, Christopher Lee. Where are we at? <laughs> no, that's not it. <laughs> What's happening right now? Everybody thinks stop. You just stop. 
Lee was quite impressed with the history of public executions. He reportedly knew the name of every official public executioner employed by England, dating all the way back to the mid-15th century. We also know that he was in a heavy metal band. He released a heavy metal album in 2010 under the name, uh, the, uh, the title of the album was called Charlemagne by the Sword and, uh, and the Cross which won the Spirit of Metal Award in the 2010 Metal Hammer Golden God Ceremony. So there you have, there you have that. I think Anthony has a, a, a Metal Hammer Award. In addition to his impossibly prolific film career, Lee was world champion fencer, an opera singer, spoke six languages, and was a hell of a golfer. Number 21, he made a Knight Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire in 2009, a Commander of the Venerable Order of St. John in 1997, made a Commander of the Order of the Arts and Letters by the French government in 2011, earned a British Academy of Film and Television Arts Fellowship in 2011, received the Bram Stoker Award for Lifetime Achievement in 1994, and so many more. Last but not least, despite everything you've heard about the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, Christopher Lee was recognized as being the most connected actor in the world in 2008 again by guinness he connects to virtually any actor in two and a half steps beating bacon see we do six degrees of separation christopher lee would be an unbelievable subject for that now i have a little something extra for you he also um a few years before his death he he was at you know taking questions at a public forum or whatever a lot of a lot of students were gathering around and interested to pepper him with questions and someone asked him about his rumored occult library and since we were talking about the occult tonight i wanted to bring this up uh and here he is responding to the rumor of him having a vast occult library and then giving some advice on dealing with the occult listen to this up in the back there uh, it's well known that you have a huge interest in the occult and one of the largest collections of books uh, on that I topic. don't have a huge collection. Somebody wrote I had 20,000 books. <laughs> I'd have to live in a bath. <laughs> I have maybe four or five. <laughs> I have the Devil Rides Out, first edition, signed to me by Dennis Wheatley. There's a book just come out about him, called The Devil is a Gentleman. And um, I have met people who claimed to be Satanists, who claimed to be involved with black magic, who claimed that they not only knew a lot about it, but as I said, I've certainly never been involved, and I warn all of you, never, never, never. You will not only lose your mind, you lose your soul. Uh, I, I don't have a big library in the account, no. I don't know, these, look, the internet and the media, if they can't think of something to do, they invent it. <laughs> if they can't think of something to say, I mean, they invent it. I don't know who thought that one up. Looks good in print, I suppose, but it's not true. So there you have it. A little, little bit of good advice. Stay away from it all. 
uh, you can lose your mind and you lose your soul. That's Christopher Lee. That's our badass for the night. And I want to thank you all so much for being here. Um, thank you again. I'm going to release the scratching over there on Foxhole. Stick around. We have some great Tuesday night programming coming your way. Thank you again. Um, here is uh, Anna Lexer says this is for Aurora what a little cutie you have uh, you have shared with us thank you for the love you put out there oh no doubt about it no doubt about it sending the love right back to you and Alexer thank you and um, and over on quite frankly superchat.com let me make sure that we are all up to date over there and then we are going to be kicking off down the trail over here nope that's not it there it is Gary Maricano says, Frank, you should watch the space movie from 1993. If you don't know which one I'm talking about, just Google space movie from 1993, but I can't say it. Space movie from 1993, but you can't say it. Okay. I'll have to remember that. Cody says, love every time you have Jay on. You, him, Owen, Benjamin are pretty much the only shows I listen to anymore. That would be awesome if you had Owen on sometime. That definitely wouldn't be a show for YouTube, though. Take care, Frank. I've tried um, a number of times. Uh, and, of course, that's not, that's not a knock on him. He's, he's got a, a big audience. He's a busy guy, and he, he does a lot does a lot uh, a lot of work so i'm i'm sure someone like me can get lost in the fray there but i have tried and i'll 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 make an attempt again one day and mama time lord says thank you for helping us all survive clown world much love to you and the franklies thank you mama thank you and uh and all the best to you all really happy to be joined by you tonight tomorrow's another night we've got an in-studio guest then and I will see you, I'll see you when 7 o'clock rolls around. Bye. Bye-bye. I'll catch you on the flip side. Quite frankly, is film before a live studio audience. And now our super chatter, starting with Todd Fife and Tina Hagen and Gary Maricano, Cody, Mama Time Lord, Stostube, Trish, Revolution, Gino. Thank you to everybody on Rumble, everybody on Foxhole. I will see you on QuiteFrankly.tv after the proceedings here wrap up. Until tomorrow, ladies and gents, good night. tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. I thought not. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. It's a Sith legend. Darth Plagueis was a dark lord of the Sith, so powerful and so wise he could use the force to influence the midichlorians 
to create life. He had such a knowledge of the dark side that he could even keep the ones he cared about from dying. The dark side of the force is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. He became so powerful. The only thing he was afraid of was losing his power, which eventually, of course, he did. Unfortunately, he taught his apprentice everything he knew, then his apprentice killed him in his sleep. Ironic, he could save others from death, but not himself. Will you shut up? Ow.